Hello everyone and welcome to this, the In Context podcast with me, Gregor Thompson. This is episode 27 and for this episode I spoke with Dr. Murray Stein, who is a graduate of Yale University, the University of Chicago and the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. He is a founding member of the Interregional Society of Jung Analysts and of the Chicago Society of Jung Analysts. He has been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology as well as the president for the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich. He is an expert in Carl Jung, who is a Swiss psychologist. We'll get deeper into who Carl Jung was in the conversation. Um, But we had a great conversation, very interesting, about meaning and spirituality and the the symbolism and the meaning in religious stories. Um, It was a great conversation. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you quickly about the sponsor of the podcast. So this episode is brought to you by the Struggle for Meaning newsletter. This is a weekly newsletter in which I send out every Sunday for free a short article concerning embracing struggle. If you're struggling to be more productive, to be healthy, to achieve your dreams, perhaps you've been chasing the wrong thing. A lot of us believe that we should be aiming for happiness, but this to me is an unwise pursuit as happiness comes and goes without any control from us. But there is one constant in life that we rarely admit and that is struggle, suffering, pain, and the best way to feel fulfilled is to bear that responsibility of struggle, is to embrace it, is to volunteer yourself to it. That's the way to be more fulfilled in life. It's the reason why we feel good after exercising, because it's a struggle to exercise, it's a struggle to eat healthy, but we feel good when we do. We feel good after we've had an uncomfortable conversation, but it's definitely a struggle to have it. So that's why I created the newsletter. Along with the article, I also provide tips, strategies, and recommendations to help you along the way. To sign up, again, for free, go to gregorthompson.com. The link will be in the show notes. You just need to confirm your subscription and make sure you check your spam folder for your welcome newsletter. If you add me to your contacts, you will receive it every week in your inbox for free. And that's it. Once you've subscribed, you're on your way to struggling more and being more productive, healthy, and motivated. And lastly, this is the last piece of housekeeping before we get into the conversation, I promise to stay up to date with everything concerning the In Context podcast, to watch short clips from the podcast, everything concerning the Struggle for Meaning newsletter and all of my other work. You can follow my social media channels. My Instagram is Gregor Thompson, all one word. My Facebook page is Gregor Thompson journalist. And you can watch the podcast on my YouTube channel, which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. All of this will be linked in the show notes to make it easier for you. So please click them, subscribe to all my social media channels and my YouTube page. It's genuinely very much appreciated and it's the best way you can support the podcast. You can also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and you can follow and subscribe there. That would genuinely be very much appreciated. But now I've kept you waiting long enough. This is the conversation with Dr. Murray Stein. Um, so Murray, I thought we'd, we'd start with maybe you introducing yourself and also perhaps introducing who Carl Jung was for anyone that doesn't know. Uh, well, I'm, um, what should I say about myself? Uh, <laughs> I live in Switzerland uh, at the present time and have for about the past 20 years now. I w- trained to become a Jungian analyst at the Jung Institute in Zurich uh, in the early 1970s. And then I moved back to the United States. I'm an American citizen and lived there for the next 30 years in Chicago, mainly, and was very much involved with the, um, 
I guess what you could call the Jungian movement, uh, which was very robust in the 70s and 80s in the United States, rapid growth of training institutes and public interest. And I was very much involved in all of that. And then I became also a member of the executive committee of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and became the president in 2001 and served until 2003. So I've traveled around the world a good bit um, representing Jungian psychology in different cultures and countries. Had a great interest in experiencing how various cultures receive Jung and what they do with him. Uh, countries like China and Japan, Russia, mm -hmm. um, so, um, South American countries and different parts of the world, South Africa. So I've had quite a lot of experience with Jungians uh, throughout the world. And I've been one myself now for almost 50 years practicing. Um, and I still practice, I teach at the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich. I'm a, a training and supervising analyst there now. It's a training program for people who want to uh, become Jungian psychoanalysts. And many of them are in second half of life sort of people uh, above the age of 40. There are some under that age, but most of them are in their 40s and 50s, second career. Uh, their backgrounds may be in the helping professions or not. Um, we're very open to people of different backgrounds. Uh, so it's very interesting. It's a very international group. We have about 20 countries represented in the student body from all over the world. So I find that very satisfying and interesting work with them. And then I do quite a lot of writing and mm -hmm. editing and, and uh, lecturing online since the pandemic started, uh, started, I've been mostly working at home um, and doing uh, gigs like this, talking to people and, uh, and giving lectures to various groups around the world uh, on Zoom, which is a very efficient way to uh, work. I don't have to spend time traveling, going through airports, staying in hotels and all that to get there. Just turn on the switch and I'm there and, uh, and back home afterwards. So I've rather enjoyed the pandemic. Um, that <laughs> haven't, haven't caught COVID, I'm glad to say. But. Well, yeah, that's... Who was C.G. Jung? Well, that's a really big question. Uh, um, he was a Swiss psychiatrist who uh, um, came from a, a religious background. His, fa his father was a Swiss reformed pastor. His grandfather also in, in Basel was a very high ranking uh, Swiss clergyman uh, on the one side. On the other side, his other grandfather was a medical doctor and um, became the head of the medical school at the um, university in Basel. And Jung chose medicine over theology at his father's advice. His father said, there isn't much of a future in theology. You better study something else. So. Uh, Jung chose medicine because it was practical and he could earn a living. They didn't have very much money as a, I also grew up in that kind of family. My father was a pastor. I know the situation. You live well, but you don't have much of an income or cash. Um, and so um, uh, he got a scholarship from an uncle to uh, study medicine at the university. I got a scholarship from Yale University um, to study there. and. Uh, 
uh, got my undergraduate degree and a, a divinity degree from Yale. Jung studied at the University of Basel, got his medical degree, and then he went to Zurich to study um, psychiatry under a rather well-known psychiatrist of his day named Eugen Bleuler. And Bleuler is the, um, is the man who named schizophrenia. Uh, previous to that, it had been called dementia precox, uh, in other words, an uh, early form of dementia. And um, uh, Bleuler um, uh, reevaluated it and gave it a new name, and that has stuck. So uh, the Burkholzley Clinic in Zurich was very famous in its day, and it's still quite well known. It's, uh, uh, it's part of the medical school at the University of Zurich. And Jung did his psychiatric training there. And while he was there, he made contact with Freud, who was just beginning to become well-known outside of Vienna in 1900. And uh, so Jung became a Freudian for a period of time, worked very closely with Freud. Freud chose him as his crown prince to succeed him when he would die, but uh, that didn't work out. And Jung broke away in 1912, 1913 and formed his own school called analytical psychology. And a group of people formed around him. Um, and um, the school did very well. It drew um, uh, students from uh, many, many countries, uh, uh, specifically uh, UK, England, and um, the United States, but also other countries like Germany and France, came to study with Jung and Zurich. and. Uh, Gradually, a school built up there, and after the Second World War, a training program was set up by his students called the C.G. Jung Institute of Zurich. That's where I studied um, in 1970. Um, Jung died in 1961, a famous man, had been on the cover of Time magazine in the United States and received honorary degrees from Oxford and Harvard and other places. So um, he did very well uh, in his career. Um, but um, he struggled uh, to find himself, particularly after his break with Freud. He had to really go deeply into his own way of thinking and uh, construct a whole new psychology. Uh, and um, that was a, over a period of about 10 years. He did that work, and then he was ready to enter into the public uh, realm with it and uh, continued evolving it for the rest of his life. Um, there are 18 volumes of his collected works that um, represent his major writings. Doesn't include everything, but most of what he wrote is contained in the collected works. So you mentioned his relationship to Freud there. Is the reason that they, I suppose, split ways was because Jung was very interested in religion and Freud, by most accounts, would maybe be a materialist, more a science-based psychologist. Yeah, that was one of the reasons. Jung, from early on, had been very interested in spiritualism. Um, it was in his family. His mother had a kind of um, what he called a second personality. He said she was different at night. <laughs> and she was, um, and her father, um, communicated with the dead. Um, his first wife died, and uh, when he married the second one, um, he continued having conversations with the first one because I guess she gave him better recipes than the second one could offer. Um, 
Anyway, on Wednesday afternoons, he would speak to his the spirit of his dead wife. And Jung had a, a cousin named Heli Preiswerk, Helene Preiswerk, who as a teenager had a mediumistic gift. She could go into a trance and they would hold these trances in Jung's home. Uh, his mother set up the room, they pulled the curtains, sat around a table and the table would levitate a bit. And she would begin speaking in other voices, mostly the voices of their ancestors, their grandfather, great-grandfather, and Jung was very, as a, he was um, in college at this time, the university, and he was very impressed by his cousin, what she could do. And in fact, he wrote his doctoral thesis about her seances. Um, mm -hmm. um, and this interest in spiritualism in another world was with him since childhood. If you read his quotes autobiography, it's not actually an autobiography, but it's, um, it's, um, a work that he put together with his secretary named Anela Yaffe, who was, a, um, I think, a literary genius to um, create this um, uh, wonderful work out of his conversations with her. Uh, he talks a lot about his early experiences with dreams, with visions, with uh, what he called personality number two. Um, and when he was with Freud one time, they were sitting in Freud's office and uh, suddenly uh, there was a loud bang from the, like, a, like the wood cracked in one of the bookcases. And um, Freud was shocked by that. And Jung said, oh, there's gonna be another one in a few seconds, just wait, I can feel it in my stomach. I know how this happens. And lo and behold, it did. And Jung gave it a name, that's a, I forget what he called it, but it was a special kind of, you know, spiritualistic phenomenon. And Freud was very put off by this. Um, and Jung was put off by Freud's reaction to it. And um, so they had these differences around spirituality, I would say, not so much religion. It wasn't that Jung was religious in a traditional sense, going to church. And I don't think he went to church after he became an adult, except to go to weddings or something like that. But he was not a churchgoer. Um, uh, and nor was Freud. Freud belonged to the B'nai B'rith, you know, a Jewish organization, but he, he didn't belong to a synagogue. He didn't consider himself a religious Jew in any sense. His grandfather had been, Freud's grandfather had been, like Jung's grandfather had been a Christian minister. Um, so they, they had religious backgrounds, neither one of them was religious, but Jung had this spiritual connection that Freud, if he had it, um, what he called oceanic feeling, he says, I don't have that oceanic feeling, but there are stories about him that indicate he may have had some of it. He may mm. have had some connection to those objects that he collected and put on his desk, um, you know, those um, icons and um, small representations of the gods, Egyptian and Greek and so on. There are stories that he would speak to them, or you know, they would sort of enter into some kind of strange relationship. So I think probably was a side of Freud that he was afraid of, and he actually warned against uh, Jung against that uh, that flood of mud of occultism. Don't go there, he said to, to Jung. That will destroy psychoanalysis. He saw psych psychoanalysis as a rational. Um, 
enlightenment enterprise based on scientific reasoning, experiment, research. But if you read Freud's cases, for instance, they're not very scientific. They're 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 like they read like novels. They're, he made up stuff. Uh, his interpretations are wild. Um, he was a confabulator. He, he put things together in his head and announced them as interpretations. Uh, so it wasn't nearly as scientific as he thought it was. And what put Jung off really was that Jung that Freud wasn't scientific enough. In the, in Jung's sense of scientific. Um, Jung defined what he meant by scientific. He said, uh, it's uh, based on empirical research and experience and uh, thinking about it. So we can think about mediumistic phenomena, about spiritualistic phenomena, about ghosts, about spirits. We can think about them. We can research it. So he belonged to the Society for Psychical Research in England, for instance. Um, that's science. You can research anything that you can experience. Why not? So you experience um, visions, research it. And Jung was interested in that. And Freud tended to stay away from it. And so Jung saw that Freud's scientific interest was closed to certain phenomena. And that bothered him. Uh, he said, that's not scientific. And then on one particular occasion, Freud, uh, they were they were traveling together back from the United States in 1909. They, they both went to Clark University in Massachusetts and got honorary degrees. And coming back on the ship, they exchanged dreams with one another. And um, Freud told Jung a dream, and Jung asked for his associations to the dream. So you know, when you receive a dream, you ask the dreamer, "What are your associations to this and that?" And Freud refused to give him uh, his associations. He said, if I give you my associations to this, to this dream, I will lose my authority. And Jung never forgot that. Authority, what is that? In science, there is no authority. You don't pull authority in science. You examine with an open mind everything. Um, and Jung was allergic to authority outside himself. He, he would not accept it. He was Swiss. The Swiss threw the Habsburgs out in the 1400s or 1300s out of Switzerland. And Freud grew up in Vienna where, you know, the, uh, the uh, Holy Roman Emperor lived and the, and the Empire of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and he was a little more authority oriented. The Swiss do not like outside authorities. So that was what, that, it just hit him wrong. And he thought in science, it should be open. We should be able to discuss anything. If he gives me his associations, let's go into his dreams. Let's find out what's there. On the other hand, Jung told Freud a dream and also refused to give him his associations because he knew how Freud was going to interpret it. Um, and he said um, um, uh, he withheld his true associations and threw some things to Freud that Freud could use and was satisfied with. So they hit this point of not being able to communicate with each other. That was in 1909. That wasn't the end of the story by a long distance, really. But it struck a nerve. And after that, Jung started thinking his own thoughts, going his own way. And he wrote a book in 1912 in which he revised some Jung, uh, Freudian theories. 
particularly the theory of incest, um, the incest wish. Um, Freud said the incest wish is a wish to have sex with your mother if you're a little boy, okay? And Jung said the incest wish is a wish for childhood. It's, it's not particularly sexual. So Jung was about desexualizing what Freud called libido. Jung called it psychic interest. Um, and Jung said there's more to libido than just sexuality. And that was really their theoretical difference that Freud put so much emphasis on sexuality and Jung could accept sexuality to, to a certain point, but he said schizophrenia, for instance, which he treated at the clinic, is not caused by a repression of, of uh, sexuality. Some neuroses are, hysteria might be. Freud was treating hysteria in Vienna. Jung was treating schizophrenia in um, Zurich. And he said schizophrenia isn't the result of repression of sexuality. There's something else much um, more organic going on. And Freud wouldn't accept that. When Freud read Jung's book, um, he was very dismissive of it. And that really hurt Jung's feelings. It was a narcissistic injury to Jung that Freud dismissed it. Freud said, oh, there's nothing in this book that hasn't been said already. It, it isn't up to the standards of psychoanalysis. And Jung thought he'd made a, a tremendous contribution and a breakthrough. And it was on that note of hurt and anger and mutual disaffection that they broke in 1913. Um, and it was very painful for Jung to leave Freud because Freud had been his, Freud was, Jung said Freud was the first genius he'd ever met. Freud really had genius uh, and, and that spark of brilliance uh, when he was speaking or in his presence, you would just feel it around him. And Jung recognized that and he admired Freud tremendously for that. Uh, and so when he lost Freud, um, he not only lost a father figure, but he lost a guide, <clears throat> an intellectual guide, a, a, a star that would guide him. So he had to find his own, uh, his own way. And that began what we call his Red Book experience. And it's when he took a deep dive into his own inner life and um, explored his inner world and found an inner teacher to replace Freud. The inner teacher uh, was named Philemon. And so Philemon, who was like a Gnostic teacher, a religious teacher, became Jung's um, mentor on an inner level. And um, so Jung could let go of um, Freud and, and pursue his own thinking. And out of this inner work, he elaborated his most important um, theories and concepts. The Red Book was, it was not published in Jung's lifetime. It's a big book. It was published in 2009. Uh, and it looks, the published version looks like this. It's a big, heavy book. Yeah. And it's got lots of pictures in it, paintings that, that Jung uh, created in there, painted on the pages, um, calligraphic script. He very carefully wrote out his, what he called active imaginations and commentary on it, uh, what happened to him during this period of time. And he worked on that for about 15 years um, until he um, felt he'd done enough of that and he went on and did other things after that. Um, notably, um, a 
commentaries on a lot of world religions, including Christianity, later in his life, and also a very deep study of alchemy and alchemical philosophy and, uh, and uh, fantasy imagery, what Jung called projections into the alchemical process, uh, fascinated Jung. And then Jung used that material to talk about psychological process, uh, the individuation process, the development of the personality. So you mentioned that Jung wasn't in himself religious, but obviously he was fascinated by religion. So was it maybe the case that Jung believed that the stories in, say, the Bible are not objectively and scientifically true, but the interpretation of the stories can be? I don't know if that makes sense. Like fundamentally, they can be true. The morals and the symbolism of the stories are true. Maybe they weren't intentioned the intention behind these stories weren't for them to be believed, but for them to be interpreted in a uh, meaningful way. Jung took a, a middle road, you know, he said, um, so, um, he had a, a, a very interesting relationship with uh, a Catholic priest named Victor White in the mm. late 1940s and 1950s. And, um, um, Victor White was a Dominican, taught at Oxford. He was steeped in medieval theology, a, a professor of um, uh, Thomistic uh, theology, Thomas Aquinas. And he uh, found, took a great interest in Jung's psychology because he thought Jung's psychology and Catholic theology could somehow be combined in an interesting way. And he wrote some books on that topic. So at one point, um, Jung says in a letter to Victor White, um, I've read some of your essays and it made me ask, do I have faith or do I not have faith? The word faith, you know. And he says, uh, I had to conclude that I do not have faith, but I have respect. I have respect for the Christian religion and its images, its dogmas, and he wrote extensively on Christian uh, topics and themes and on the Bible. He carried a Bible around with him. He read the Bible a lot. He was steeped in, in biblical uh, uh, text. Um, but I, but I, I extend the same respect to other religions. I respect Hinduism. I respect Buddhism. Um, I respect uh, Native um, American beliefs. He visited the uh, Pueblo um, indigenous people, we call them Pueblo Indians in New Mexico. I think it was 1925 and he had a conversation with one of the leading figures there. And he was so impressed by their belief in nature and, uh, and um, their prayers to the sun. He was very moved by that. And so he says, I respect it all. So what does that mean if you respect it, but you don't believe? Um, Jung could go into, and, and Jungians do this as well. Uh, if somebody brings you a dream in which there is an important symbol, um, you don't believe that the dream actually happened. You know, it's, it happened while you're sleeping in your imagination. And so it's true in that sense. For you, it's a real experience. 
your dreams are as real experientially as your waking experiences are. They tend to fade um, when you wake up, but if you practiced, you can stay in contact with them. But while you're having them, they're very real. People could die of heart attacks in dreams sometimes. They're so mm -hmm. frightened by what they, what they experience. And they're very emotional and very powerful. So Jung would treat um, uh, the Bible, the biblical stories at that level. If you, um, if you go to the Church of the Resurrection in Jerusalem, as I did some years ago, you see the place where Jesus was buried and there's a, a, like a cave there. And I was standing there and with a Jewish friend of mine. And um, I said, oh, that's where Jesus was buried. You see the tomb is empty. It's empty, see that? And he smiled and said, yes, the tomb is empty. <laughs> and you know, Christians would believe it's empty because Jesus mm -hmm. resurrected. Um, Non-believers would say, oh, well, somebody came and took his body out of there, you know? It's a different way of looking at it. And Jung would look at a story like the resurrection as symbolically true. Mm -hmm. And very, uh, I just watched the, um, I don't know if you've been watching the funeral service of Queen Elizabeth in mm -hmm. uh, Westminster Abbey and uh, the prayers and the, and the gospel readings about the afterlife, about he who believes in Christ shall never die and so on. I mean, you can be taken up into an aura of um, high emotion and uh, um, conviction in that moment. You're surrounded by angels practically uh, in that cathedral and everybody's singing. And uh, so it's like a communal experience. And that isn't unreal, but when you leave the cathedral, it may fade like a dream one. It was mm -hmm. in that moment, I really, really believed that uh, Elizabeth is now in heaven with the angels or with her mm -hmm. mother or her father she loved so much. In that moment, it feels very real. Now, Jung had a word for this. Uh, he called it intermediate reality. Um, and he says, of intermediate reality, you don't ask, is it true or false? Mm -hmm. And it's similar to what Winnicott said about uh, play and transitional space. If a child is playing, it's real. To the child, that play is as real as anything they will ever do in their lives. And you don't ask them, um, did, did, that, uh, did that dog really fly? You told me your doggy was flying. To the child in play, that's real. So there's this space that he called transitional mm -hmm. space. They're transitional objects that stand for something else. They're symbols. A child mm -hmm. will carry a teddy bear, stands for the mother or something. And you don't ask uh, true and false questions about it. You go into that space with the person and you experience them with it with them and you leave it there. So when it comes to uh, religious belief and dogmas, you can think about them as theologians do, and you can experience them. Um, I recently studied Dante's Divine Comedy quite uh, deeply and extensively for a period of time. It was his the 700th anniversary of his death in uh, 21. And um, I was asked to give a lecture 
um, in Ravenna. Um, and so I went, uh, I spent about a year studying uh, the Divine Comedy in English. I don't read Italian. So I, I don't get the beauty of the poetry, but I get the, I get the meaning of the words, I think. And um, if you immerse yourself deeply in Dante's Divine Comedy, you enter into another world. There is the world of the Inferno, the world of Purgatorio, and the world of Paradiso. And uh, Dante's uh, depiction of them is so realistic and so um, alive. Many of his scholars, Dante's scholars, say this about the characters in a few words. He creates a living character that I've lived for 700 years, people still studying that text and commenting on it. Um, so the world of literature is also this kind of um, intermediate space. I had a teacher at Yale named Harold Bloom, and he called himself a bardolater. He, he worshiped Shakespeare. And if you would hear him talk about Hamlet or Lear, or uh, I was recently reading about, he wrote about um, Othello, Iago, the figure Iago. He, uh, he could enter that world of Shakespeare and speak from it in a way that was transporting. You would be there with him. You would feel those personalities. And he said, he said, uh, Hamlet is the most real character ever invented. He is more real than Shakespeare. Uh, he steps out of the text. He dominates the text. He's more real than the uh, literary Hamlet. He comes to life. So your imagination is a powerful tool for uh, capturing an aspect of psychic reality that if you're only using your rational mind and your senses and doing that kind of work, which is more Freud's level or attempted level, um, you, you miss that. And Jung was very good at that. I, I would say that's where Jung's genius really lay in uh, the appreciation and the study of imagination, the imaginal world of dreams, myths, fairy tales, um, what people uh, experience in their souls not in their bodies necessarily. Dante didn't go physically through these three realms, but imaginatively he experienced them very powerfully and deeply. And we can capture that if we read uh, what Bloom says, uh, deep reading. Uh, you read deeply and um, Bloom would say, read slowly and read out loud. Uh, and if you do that, you get into the text and of course, that's how the Bible is read in church. Well, I just listened to it when they were reading those uh, texts from Paul and the gospel, uh, very well read, beautifully read, so convincing that you can, you can see the angels flying in the space around them. Mm -hmm. um, it's very convincing, but that's an imaginal world. So we can't test it with uh, microscopes and telescopes and but we probably could test it with other kinds of instruments. Uh, if you could test the minds and hearts of the people who are sitting there listening to it, you would see something. Their brains are active, activated by that. Like meditators, meditators' brains start humming in a different frequency. 
So it does affect the body also. And that can be uh, measured with the instruments that are now available to um, students of um, neuroscience. And I think what you're saying there when you're when people read slowly or when they read the Bible or even when they watch movies and they become lost in them in that yeah. they feel like they're experiencing what's happening in say the movie or the story. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think that if it's a good story, it speaks to us, it speaks to our human nature. And so it's not like, mov like movies like superhero films to me are not dissimilar to um, say stories in the Bible in that objectively, I don't believe they're happening, but you do get lost in the story. And I think that's because say in a superhero film, the reason we get lost in it is not because the superhero is invincible and he just is able to do anything and that's, that's the end of the story. The reason is because the, the, the hero has some sort of vulnerability or some limitation. And so that's maybe what speaks to us because we have our vulnerabilities and our limitations. And that's why we connect to these people, even though they're big superheroes with superpowers and ridiculous big arms and stuff like that. We still relate to them. And it's maybe the same in the Bible. You identify with them. Right. Hmm. And the Bible is full of very real human beings. Uh, I wrote a book called um, um, on, on the Bible as a developmental process. The Bible as dream is the title of the book. Hmm. And I look on the Bible as a development from early um, stage of consciousness to a very advanced stage of consciousness in the figure of Jesus, who is all about um, service. Um, and it moves on a trajectory over a high point of David, who is the king. Mm -hmm. David and Solomon are the great kings, very human figures. And Jesus, a very human figure, but advanced in consciousness from ruling to serving. That's what was said about Queen Elizabeth today as well, that mm -hmm. she didn't rule, she served. She was, her, it was all about service. And we see that as a very high level in, in all the religions, uh, and uh, uh, that uh, service is a high level of consciousness where you don't put yourself in the center, you um, are uh, uh, in the service of the good in the world, um, doctors working with their patients to heal them, not hurt them, therapists trying to help their um, clients become more conscious and live a better life. So this, um, um, and the Bible is um, different from most other mythological systems in that it isn't filled with gods and goddesses and so on, they're human beings. Um, but they, uh, and we can identify with them. Um, and we can identify with Jesus, he was a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, but he was more than that. And so that, that more than is what's so interesting uh, to the imagination. And Jung would say, we're all more than that. Jung has a famous um, sentence in a book that he wrote about the Bible called Answer to Job. It's a very controversial book and disliked by um, sort of conservative theological people. But in, there, in that book, he said, um, um, he uses a phrase, the Christification of many. 
he says, um, it isn't meant that only one person should become Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, many should, all should become Christ. And what he meant by that wasn't to become superheroes or to become mm -hmm. divine in the ordinary sense, but to connect with the uh, what he saw as the divinity within. You know, that everybody has this um, uh, divine spark, you could say, within themselves. We call it the soul, or the mm -hmm. immortal soul, part of ourselves that uh, exceeds our waking life and our physical body's existence. Um, so to uh, connect to that and to live both your normal life and that life, uh, that eternal life that inhabits your soul, to live them both is to become Christified. That's what Jesus did. He said, I and the Father are one. Well, he was a human being and he died on the cross and was buried and everything, but he was also uh, at one with this other dimension. And so I think that's basically what Jung's religion would, would amount to. Uh, he believed in connecting to um, the eternal, immortal part of ourselves through inner work. And he had various methods for doing that. One is to follow your dreams. The other is to do this active imagination work, which is like meditation. And over a period of time, you will, um, if you stay with it, you, and, and it's hard work, you will, you will discover something within yourself that looks like the, um, the immortal core of your personality. Maybe it has another name or it has another dimension. <clears throat> so um, that's, you know, deep inner work um, to arrive at that two dimensionality, you could say. Maybe, maybe relates to the question I want to conclude the conversation with is how to apply Jung's psychoanalysis to our lives now in a modern, more postmodern society. How how can people people listening now? How, what's the best way, according maybe according to Jung, to find meaning in life? Not necessarily happiness, but to find meaning in your life. Yeah. Well, there are no easy formulas. Uh, I, I would mm. never write a self help book uh, <laughs> trying to give ten steps uh, to find meaning. Um, but uh, meaning is available to us if we, if we work for it. Um, but what is meaning? Um, I wrote a, a paper called The Meanings of Meaning. Um, it's published in, um, my collected writings are coming out and I, I think it's in volume four or five. The Meanings of Meaning. You know, you can find your daily life very meaningful. If you love your wife and your children, it's meaningful to go to work, to come home, to play with them, um, you know, to do the chores of life, to pay the bills. It's all meaningful. If you're not depressed, if you're happy, if you're satisfied, and if love is there, love is a very important ingredient in life. And if love isn't there, then it's just routine. That's rather boring. Uh, you get tired of it. You don't want to do it anymore. But if you love your job, or you love your family, it, it's a meaningful activity. That's one type of meaning, everyday life meaning. But there's another type of meaning that 
uh, in Jung's Red Book, he talks about uh, Sinn, Unsinn, und Übersinn. Sinn is meaning, Unsinn is nonsense or meaninglessness, and Übersinn is um, a higher sense of meaning or super meaning or mm. transcendent meaning. And um, so that that third one, that transcendent, the, the second one would be like meaningless life, like you're really down and boring and don't want to do it anymore. You have no energy for it. Everything is meaningless. The first one is meaningful daily activities. The third one is that your life has a transcendent meaning. You've been given a vocation. Uh, you aren't making it up. It's been given to you. And thinking of the queen, um, she was given the crown at an early age. She didn't ask for it. She didn't expect it. She was given it. And she, she received it, and she accepted the role that went with it. That gave her a sense beyond everyday meaning that we would call Übersinn, transcendent meaning. She was serving God by being the queen. She was serving the people. This sense of uh, service of something much greater than yourself, um, that's what you have to find. So. If you want to find that, you need to delve deeply into yourself or look for opportunities to find a vocation that will give you a sense that you are serving something beyond yourself and that your life is dedicated to that, to that higher value or, or principle or, or, or God figure, uh, however you want to put it. And, um, uh, I think that's what Jung found in his inner explorations. He dedicated himself to what he called the process of individuation and helping others to achieve that. Um, and uh, for people who have a vocation, um, you know, and it can be it can be a, a chef um, <laughs> on television teaching other people how to cook healthy food. You got the vocation of being a teacher and a chef. Um, it doesn't have to be uh, some sort of religious calling, although it might be. You might be called to become a, a, a priest or a rabbi. Um, there are people who gravitate toward that, and that gives their life transcendent meaning to, to, serve, a, to serve a tradition uh, and a, a, a spiritual um, a reality. So that's the way I think about meaning. And uh, um, if you can find love in your life, you'll find meaning on one level. If you can find a vocation, you'll find meaning on another level. Well, that's a, it's a good place to end. Um, that, was, that was a great conversation. It was very interesting. One of the things I may be getting from that conversation is Jung's psychology is so vast and complex that obviously we were never going to get through all of it. Um, so what I want to end with actually is just maybe where can people um, find your work? Where can people stay up to date with what you're doing? Oh, I have a website, uh, Murray W. Stein, or Murray Stein, I think, or Murray.Stein website. If you Google my name, you'll find it. Um, and I would also refer people, uh, and you'll see all my books there, but I would refer people if they, if they want a good introduction two books. One I wrote called Jung's Map of the Soul, 
And uh, the other one is Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which was co-written with Anila Yaffe. And it's Jung telling uh, his own life story. And pretty much all of his ideas are in there in, in, a, in a very readable form. That was the first of his books that I read and I've, uh, it changed my life. I thought, this is it for me. I'm, this is marvelous. This is what I've been looking for. I read it at about the age of 25 and I've never turned back since. So I recommend that book to a lot of people and many other people say the same about it, that it there's a kind of magical quality to what Anilia Yaffe, his secretary, uh, most uh, put into that book and making that book. Most of his books are rather hard reading. You know, he's not an easy writer um, to, to um, consume his, uh, his ideas, but uh, once you get uh, the general gist of it and then you go into it, it, it becomes easier the longer you stay with it. Well, Murray, thank you very much for taking the time. It would um, it would be it would be great to have another conversation because we're obviously we're just scratching the surface of um, Jung's work. So um, yeah, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, it was great. See you again, Gregor. Take care. Thank you. And so that's the end of the episode. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Like I said at the start, you can sign up for the Struggle Free Meaning newsletter by going to gregorthompson.com. The link will be in the show notes. There you can sign up and receive this newsletter for free every Sunday. You will not regret it, I promise. If you'd like to know who I'll be having on for my next episode and for all other future episodes, you can follow my Instagram, which is Gregor S. Thompson, or my Facebook page, which is Gregor Thompson Journalist. And you can also watch these conversations on YouTube. And you can also stay up to date by subscribing to my YouTube channel, which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. All of these links will be in the show notes to make life easier. But for now, thank you very much for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of the In Context podcast. I'm Gregor Thompson. Take care.